I have some friends here this morning uh, that I want to introduce to everybody. Uh, um, right on one, two, three. The fourth row is the Howard family. Um, although I guess that's not giving Blair his due respect is for starting the Drenner family. But um, Charlie Howard, if you and your wife Joe would stand up for a minute, they serve us, all of us here. Charlie is out of Sugarland. He's a representative in the U.S. I mean, in the Texas House of Representatives, a Republican out of Sugarland who. Um, has been there for how many years now? Going on nine, Going on nine years. He's um, uh, got a heart for the Lord uh, like you wouldn't believe. He and his wife, Joe have not only managed to serve there for nine years, they took their kids there and homeschooled them. Julie Drenner is um, one of their children, the oldest, I believe. And that's Julie. She's Julie Drenner now because of her husband, Blair, who sits between her and her father. Um, <laughs> Which does not bode well for me, who has four daughters. Uh, may no man ever do such. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, I want to, to thank them for driving all the way up from Sugarland for class today and just for their service to us. Um, let's see, I felt like there was one other thing. Oh, I wanted to thank Lewis for filling in last week because I was gone. Thank you, Lewis, very, very much. Um, I heard several positive comments. In fact, uh, two people asked me when I could leave again. Um, <laughs> so not for a while. Um, if you don't have a lesson, Mark Kraber's holding up the lessons. Please grab your hands. Today's lesson's got a little extra information in it. If you're new to our class, this is a class on biblical literacy. Uh, the goal behind the class is let's go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and let's try and learn what we need to know to be biblically literate people. That means we're going to learn what we need to know to understand where the Bible came from, why we know it's reliable, how to navigate it from Genesis to Revelation. So when uh, Damon is preaching and he uses a passage from Isaiah, we know how to flip there, um, where we have back in the back of our minds a little bit of knowledge of what was going on in Israel at the time Isaiah uh, had his prophecies and wrote his book. Uh, those types of things are the core knowledge we need. Now, we've been having this class since February. I've been asked if I'm going to complete it in my lifetime. God willing, we will. We are in 1 Kings. We have all of our old lessons and even old notebooks if you do not have one and you want to keep up with the class. We have a website which has the lessons online uh, as well as the um, audio and uh, a radio station here in town has asked us if we would consider letting them put our lesson on Friday afternoons on the radio station. And uh, um, if we can work that out uh, uh, where we actually get our disc and get it formatted for their station, then we'd be glad to do that. I'll tell you, we also got an email off the website from a gentleman who preaches in North or South Carolina who has asked, is there some way he can access this class for his church? So your attendance and, and your encouragement to us uh, hopefully is, is not only useful to us as a class, but bears fruit beyond uh, our church. And, and that is our hope and our goal. If you have comments and questions that are positive, I solicit them. If you have ones that are negative, uh, that's why you have uh, Sunday afternoon lunch and you can talk about it with your family. Um, no, bring those to Becky. Um, <laughs> Then I'll hear about them Sunday afternoon at lunch. Um, no. Um, uh, anyway, if you now we've got lessons passed out. We are in First Kings and uh, uh, excited to be here. I want to start out talking about making sure we understand where we have been so far in this class. 
Because as we understand where we've been, we'll also be where we are today and where we're going. So that, that's kind of the feel for what I want to do as an overall premise behind the class. We're going to do it divided up into three different areas. First, we're going to talk just in general about First Kings, which is the book we're dealing with. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to focus in on Solomon and the life of Solomon, which is the first 11 chapters in First Kings. And then the last thing we're going to do is sort of underscore the points to take home so you cannot say you left without something. Okay? Um, let's look first in the background of the book. Originally, First and Second Kings were one scroll in the Hebrew. They were not divided up into two separate books. In fact, First and Second Samuel that we just finished and First and Second Kings were each one scroll. Now, those of you who've been in here know for Samuel, the same is true for Kings, that um, in, in about 200 B.C., about 200 years before Christ, there were a group of Jewish scholars. Tradition tells us 70, which is in the Greek Septuagint. These 70 scholars translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. That Greek translation we call the Septuagint. It's important for us because a lot of our New Testament writers use the Septuagint when they quote the Old Testament. They'll quote the, the, the translation into Greek. And, and we'll go through that as we go through the New Testament and, and look at that. But the Old Testament was translated into Greek. And when they did that, in Greek, you have vowels and consonants, right? Hebrew does not have any vowels. So in Hebrew, you can write things a whole lot shorter. When you translated it into Greek, it got a whole lot longer. And it wouldn't fit on one scroll. So the King's books, what we call First and Second Kings, became two books in the Greek. It still stayed one book in the Hebrew all the way up until about the 1400s. Uh, in the 1400s, the Jewish scholars keeping their scriptures finally divided it up into two books. It was not called First and Second Kings in the Greek or the Hebrew. It was the book of kingdoms. Because what the books cover, along with Samuel, First and Second Samuel, is it covers the time where Israel was ruled by a king. It was the kingdom period of Israel's history. Israel has not been ruled by a king since. Uh, even today, Israel does not have a king. This was the time period for Israel's kings. Before that time, Israel was not ruled by kings. Moses was not a king. You know, uh, um, all of the judges, they were not kings. So the king, the first king was Saul, then we had David, and today we're going to hit Solomon. We remember then it was originally one scroll with seven king, or with, with second king's um, um, authorship. We don't know who wrote it. We know obviously God is behind it and God inspired it. It's God that saw that it was written and written in the form that it was written in. Paul tells us in Timothy that all Scripture, and he's referencing there especially the Old Testament because that's what Scripture was at the time, all Scripture is inspired by God. Uh, the, the Greek there is theognumo. It's God breathed. God breathed in the Scripture. So God breathed in the kings that we're looking at, but we don't know which individual or individuals God used to do the writing. And so as we go through this book, um, uh, the Jewish Talmud, which is a Jewish commentary in the Old Testament, traditionally uh, thought that Jeremiah had written second, First and Second Kings. Um, I've put some of that in the outline for you. If you're interested in those kinds of details, I'll give you the books. But for our biblical literacy purposes, you just need to know we're not sure who wrote it. 
Um, we do know it's, it's a unity with First and Second Samuel. What do I mean by that? I mean that you, you take those four books for us, First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, and they all together form the book of kingdoms. Okay? They give Israel's history during this time period. The time frame for First and Second Kings is from the end of David's reign. We don't know precisely when it ended. It's, I put 971-ish because it's around 971. We're not quite sure, but somewhere around there to the fall of Jerusalem, which we can accurately date at 597 B.C. So that's kind of the time range. And if you think about it, that's a pretty good while, isn't it? That's what, uh, almost 400 years. That for America would be going back to the 1603 range, right? Or 16 something in the early 1600s. So that's a lot of history. It's not that different than what our history books have in American um, history. Um, but it's written differently. Now let me ask you this question. Who's taken American history? Okay, all right. Who's taught American history? A few people. Come on, homeschoolers. You better have taught American history. Uh, <laughs> John, you better. All right. American history, if you get a history textbook, generally in American history, you'll start, oh, I think now some of them start with pre-European um, influence and what was the American culture and history prior to Western civilization's uh, conquering, if you will, um, of the Americas. But uh, really in depth, it starts with Columbus, 1492, and kind of takes us up to where we are today. And it's kind of evenly distributed so that the teachers can teach a class and, and a class and a class, and you go through the book. Um, that is not the way this book was written. This book is not written as a typical history book. It's not evenly distributed with what happened because the purpose, understand, the purpose of the book is not to convey history. Hear me? The purpose of First and Second Kings is not to convey history in and of itself. Let me give you an example. I've put up here Omri. Who's heard of Omri? Okay, two out of 300, all right? Omri is the most significant king in northern Israel's history if you're looking at it from a purely political perspective. This guy was a mega successful king. This is a guy, he was their biggest ruler. He made Samaria the capital of northern Israel. And he built it up and he built up the fortifications so that Samaria could be a strong city. He had extensive training with the Phoenicians. We know about the Phoenicians. We read about them. They supposedly came up with the alphabet. We were taught, it turns out they didn't. Uh, the alphabet predated them. But um, the Phoenicians we at least know about from our secular history studies. He, um, whoops, Omri withstood Syria. Um, Syria was the big powerhouse back then. And he withstood Syria throughout his reign. He had the golden era of the northern kingdom. He gets six lousy verses out of the whole thing. This is the biggest king in the history of the northern kingdom. He gets six lousy verses. It reminds me of the cartoon where Christopher Columbus says, wait a minute, I leave Spain, I come over here, I discover the whole country. What does Amerigo Vespucci do? 
Amerigo Vespucci does very little. He manages to like go around the Cape of South Africa or something like that. How come he gets South America, North America, and all I get is a town in Ohio? Omri doesn't get credit for anything in the books. He gets six lousy verses. Now compare him to Hezekiah. Hezekiah had very few significant historical achievements that historically were, were significant. And yet Hezekiah gets three full chapters. I gave you another example. Jeroboam II. If there's any rival for Omri for the golden age of the northern kingdom, it's Jeroboam II, best king they ever had. Jeroboam II's got peace in the land, the biggest borders, the most prosperous country. He gets seven verses. Compare him to two fellows who were prophets that had a very short period of ministry. Their names, Elijah and Elisha. They get one-third of the material. So these books are not written as... We might see a history book with just a good, clear, concise, chronological history to teach the Israelites their heritage. It's not at all. Because the Israelites' heritage finds its understanding in one God and its covenant that was given on Mount Sinai. And these books, while they are not a history textbook, they are not an exhaustive history. What they are is a telling of God's work among His people using the monarchy as a, as a historical framework or a timeline. If you're losing me here, hang on. We're about to get to something real interesting. But if, for those of you who are following me, this is very important. What the author focuses on and what's very deliberate here is not just, hey, let's contain the historical data that happened over this 400 years, but rather, let's understand those events and those people during this time frame that have a significant impact in terms of God and what God is doing in His people. Because we read in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, after the fall, that God never made man to be fallen. God made man to be in harmony with him. And the fallenness of man came because of the curse that happened. The curse happened when we chose sin instead of holiness. When we followed the father of lies instead of God our father. And starting with the Garden of Eden, we read in this class that God prophesied through the seed of man, the offspring of woman, would come one who would conquer Satan. And we found throughout the, the book of Genesis and throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, this prophecy continuing to be further defined, further defined, further defined, as the finger points that it's going to be through the, 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 the genealogy of Abraham, it's going to be through Isaac, it's going to be through Jacob, it's going to be through Aunt Judah, and now we find it's going to be through King David's lineage that the Messiah will come. And God's continuing to work through his, his, uh, in His world and through His people as we chart through this. And that's what the book of Kings is written for. It's not written so that we can pass a history test. It is written so we can understand God's working in His people through this history. Does that make sense? Okay, that's uh, point one. Now here's a little freebie. There are critics of the Bible who read the chronologies because there are chronologies of the kings. You know, this king reigned for this long and then this one for this long. And if you ever sit down and try to put them together mathematically, you're going to think this doesn't work. And a lot of critics wrote off the Bible because of that over the last several hundred years. 
um, if you're interested in such. In 1956 or 59, somewhere in there, a theologian named Thiel, I know that the revised version you get now was revised in 1965, put together a real good chronology. And what Thiel did is he went back and used actual archaeological texts that are outside the Bible to show how kingships were numbered and how the dates worked. Turns out the Bible works perfectly. Okay. And uh, there are some minor revisions that scholars have done since Thiel uh, that Kitchen uh, especially has done. You can find that in the New Bible Dictionary. Um, um, if you want such, uh, Kitchen and Mitchell New Bible Dictionary, has. you, you ought to have that anyway. And it's got their uh, changes and modifications. But that's a freebie. It's in your outline if you want it. By the way, also in your outline is two appendixes. One is an outline of the entire book of First and Second Kings. The other is an appendix that kind of sets out these chronologies. Not so important today, but you ought to have it in your notebook. And uh, um, as we go through the prophets, when we hit the prophets, we're going to be plugging the prophets back in to the time period when they were writing their prophecies so that we understand not only their implications for the future, but their implications for the people who were hearing them uh, those days. So we'll be getting to that. Now, second point. I want to talk to you about Solomon. This is, uh, um, Solomon gets the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings. He is one of the main characters of the book. Uh, everybody's heard of Solomon, I assume, right? There are people who speak uh, at least uh, English and, and other um, languages through Western civilization. I, I don't know about the Eastern civilization if they have anything like this. I should have asked some of our, our friends from there, but um, who reference King Solomon without even realizing it. I've got lawyers all the time, um, uh, including some pagan lawyers of mine that wouldn't know the Bible if it jumped up on their head and started hitting them, um, who use Bible talk and don't even realize that's what they're using in reference to Solomon sometimes. So let's talk about it. Solomon, I've broken his life up uh, uh, a little bit here into the rising of Solomon, the peaking of Solomon, and the decline of Solomon. And so let's go through it together. David is on his deathbed. There's a question. Who should follow King David? Who's going to be the next king? Now, David had promised Bathsheba, one of his wives, uh, the one that uh, he uh, garnered through very inappropriate means, uh, that her son and his son Solomon would be the next king. Solomon was not the oldest son of David still alive. While Absalom was dead, David's number two son was this kid named Adonijah. Adonijah. I do not recommend that name in your kids, Adonijah. Not only will they get made fun of, but he wasn't a good guy. Okay? Adonijah is David's oldest son, however. So Adonijah starts thinking, I probably need to follow King David. Let it be me. And Adonijah thinks, you know, dad's not really in the best of health. His time is drawing near. I think it's time for me to go ahead and just sort of take over. So how's he going to do it? Well, it's nice having Charlie here and uh, uh, other folks who are involved in politics because they, they have a greater appreciation for this uh, than we do. They're elected officials. But they didn't have really elections back then. You did need to command um, a good army, okay? And you did need to have some public support. But you didn't file, you know, on the ballot, all right? So here's what Adonijah does. Adonijah thinks, okay, 
I know how I'm going to take over. We're going to start off with a big kick, kickoff barbecue. Okay? Now, we're going to sound pious. They don't call it a kickoff barbecue. They call it a sacrifice. But what their sacrifice was, it was not going to the Ark of the Covenant and having a priest do the yearly sacrifice. It was get a bunch of sheep or cattle or whatever we're going to sacrifice. Let's go find some wonderful high spot, get on top of a hill, get all of our friends and family. We'll slaughter it. We'll give God the blood as we slaughter it and drain it. He can have the blood and then we'll cook all the meat and we'll eat. We call it a sacrifice because it's holy. But really what it was was a big barbecue. God was hardly involved at all. So Adonijah says, I'm going to have a kickoff barbecue. Now I need to show that I've got some military strength. So I'm going to get me some chariots. And I'm going to get me some horses. And I'm going to get 50 men that I designate. And these 50 men are going to start, they're, they're my seed. They're going to run out in front and say, man, let's make Adonijah king. And no one will ever realize that they're mine. There was Pappy Daniels. Do you, you remember your Texas politics enough to remember Pappy Daniels? And the, he had the doughboys, whatever they were called. Pappy Daniels was a governor in Texas. He was, you would run for governor during a time when, uh, I think it was the Depression or pretty close, but people didn't have much money. And he'd go speak at these big rallies and he'd have a, a, a coffee can passed around for people to throw their change. Pappy Daniels would have a $10 bill already in the coffee can. And he'd be up there talking about the hard times and how he wants everybody's vote. And the coffee can would come up to him after he'd made all the rounds of people had put in their change and he'd dump it out and he'd pull out that $10 bill and say, someone gave a $10 bill in these hard of times? I can't accept that. Whoever gave this $10 bill, raise your hand because I can't, I can't accept this. Times are too tough and I'm not going to take money out of your hands like this. Now, today, we'd have about half the people raise their hands and say, that's mine. Uh, but back then, they didn't do that. So everybody would just sit there and he said, well, obviously someone cares enough. They're not even going to claim this. I'm touched. And he'd, put back, he'd do this town to town to town to town. Um, pretty ingenious. Well, the, uh, uh, not quite honest, but pretty ingenious. So the uh, David's, I mean, Adonijah's got his own system. He's going to have these 50 guys he's hired, and they're going to say, hey, look at the chariots, look at the horses, look at the barbecue. Let's just make Adonijah king. He's the first, he's the oldest son anyway, right? So this is his plan. Problem is, word leaks out, and Bathsheba hears about it. Bathsheba's got plans of her own, and that's the promise that David made that Solomon, her boy, would be king. So Bathsheba's real upset. She goes to Nathan the prophet says, Nate, what are we going to do? Nate says, well, let me tell you. I got an idea. You go into David, and you say, what's going on? And then as you're finishing up your story, telling him about Adonijah and all he's doing, I'll come in, and I'll say the same thing. And let's see if David doesn't take care of it. So Bathsheba goes into David. David's lying in his bed, most likely. We don't know from Scripture, but he's obviously on his last leg. And she goes in and says, I thought you said Solomon was going to be king. Well, what's going on? How come Adonijah's doing all of this stuff? See, she was amazed, and, and Nathan was amazed that Adonijah was even getting away with that, because that's kind of treasonous, isn't it? Set yourself up as king while the king's still alive? Wouldn't you consider that treason? I, that's not the way someone should act, especially a boy, your son. Am, am I speaking here? You understand? I want to show you something that I think is very profound. Um, if you look at the text 
it meant a lot to whoever was, was putting this together for us too, which also means it meant a lot to the Lord. Because in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 6, as this is being detailed, um, let's see. Is that, can you all read that? Okay. Um, verse 5 right here is where I'm looking. Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. He got, 50, he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. And look at this note. Look at verse 6. His father had never interfered with him by asking, Why do you behave as you do? His father never interfered with him. Now, you know who his father is? King David. I mean, the, the writer uses King David throughout the text. He knew who his father was. But he doesn't say King David. He says his father, because there's a lesson here to all fathers. A child who grows up without guidance from their father becomes an adult who has no sense of direction. A child who grows up without guidance from his father becomes an adult with no moral compass and no sense of direction. This has got two implications for us. Number one, it's got a parenting implication. Number two, it's got, uh, who in here was a child? (laughs) None of us have perfect parents. And we need to be really careful. I'm convinced our blind spots are where and, and I, I got so many blind spots. Lord, help me see my, blind, my, my problems. There are areas in my life, as there are in yours, even though I had the best parents I've ever seen on the earth. There are areas in my life where you know, you know, we have areas where we need moral direction beyond what we have within us. And fortunately, we all have a heavenly father. And we all need to be children and listen because he will ask us, Why do you behave the way you do? If we're sensitive enough to hear him, and we need to take his direction and not live as if we're our own moral compass. Side note as we go through the text. So, you know, David's this fellow, I mean, David's lying on his bed, Adonijah's the oldest, but Solomon had been promised, so the big barbecue happens. Whoops. And, you know, I was actually cruising through this. So good. Adonijah's the oldest, Solomon's been promised. Um, the barbecue occurs, the mom gets involved, and the party gets spoiled for the spoiled kid. Because he's having the barbecue, and David says, Time out. I meant what I said about Solomon. Here's what we're going to do. Get over to Gihon, which just happens to be the town near the barbecue. You know, they went out in the country for the pretty barbecue. The town there is Gihon. Go to Gihon, anoint Solomon, say he's king, bring him back. He sits on my throne. Let no one doubt. So, while it's a pretty picture, it's kind of funny. While Adonijah's got all of his worldly schemes, God is at work through King David. And so Adonijah's got his big kickoff barbecue. He's getting ready to have his 50 men start running out saying, Hey, he's got horses, he's got chariots, he's got an army, let's make Adonijah king. And right before he sends them out, he starts hearing this ruckus from the town of Gihon. And he says, What's the noise? What's What's the ruckus happening down in the town? And a messenger comes running up and says, <clears throat> Great news! Matt and I just says, What's that? Solomon's just been anointed king! Man, y'all have been out here at the barbecue. You missed it! The big party! The whole town's excited. The whole, 
Well, Adonijah turns around and his 50 men and all of the people he invited to his barbecue realize it doesn't take two plus two to say, oh, gee, this guy wants to be king. We've already got a king, and it's a young guy who can, like, take an army. It's not David stuck in his bed. Um, I don't really want to be here. I think this is called treason. And so they just sort of disappear. And Adonijah turns around and he realizes, well, where'd everybody go? It's just me. And there's a lot of food. So Adonijah goes running to the uh, 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 ark. He grabs a hold of, of, uh, on the, the sacrificial altar. He grabs a hold of the horns and says, I'm not letting go. Don't kill me at the altar, but I, I, I'm not going to die. And tell Solomon, the new king, not to kill me, please. Um, Solomon uh, uh, is brought after he's anointed to King David. And David on his, his deathbed, uh, this is a painting by Bull, a, a famous Renaissance painter. Um, it's got King David on his deathbed, and it shows the mom there because the mom stayed real close to Solomon. Solomon, when he had his throne, made a, a, a smaller chair there, throne room chair for his mom to sit at, and it's Solomon. And David on his deathbed, still having the scepter of power uh, in the picture. This is not... <laughs> They don't tell us that in the Bible. Um, um, but that scepter is to show that he's still the, got the power and authority over Solomon, even though Solomon is king. David tells him, here's your enemies, here are the people who are supporting you, and here's what you need to do. And Solomon listens to it and follows that advice quite well. As we follow, uh, he's told David dies, Adonijah um, is told initially by, Saul, by Solomon, I won't kill you as long as you stay in line. You step out of line, I'm going to kill you. Adonijah steps out of line and uh, tries a treasonous way to, to again take the throne with Abishag, the Shunammite woman. Long story. Actually, it's not. It's about a chapter. Read it. But we're not reading it right now. And then, oh, I love this. Solomon gets a wife. He marries the daughter of Pharaoh. A daughter of Pharaoh. Ruler of Egypt. It's very interesting to me. In the scripture, Solomon gets a wife, and then Solomon gets wisdom. Um, now, I, <laughs> I'm just reporting the facts. Right? Solomon gets a wife. I don't think it's the getting of the wife that the story is underscoring as uh, pre-wisdom. I think what the story may be underscoring is he got a foreign wife. He, got, uh, he, he married for political purposes. He did not marry uh, uh, within Israelite uh, uh, country. So he gets a wife, and then God appears to him, and God says, name it. Well, if, you, if, I, if I was going to give you anything, what would you take? And Solomon says, I'd like wisdom to govern properly. I would like wisdom to govern properly. The, the passage is 1 Kings 3.9. says, um, it's a beautiful passage. We talk about praying the prayer of Jabez, which is a good prayer for people. This one's not a bad one. Um, Let's see, am I hitting close to nine? Here it is. This is what he says. Now, O Lord, my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father David, but I'm only a little child. Now, he's not a baby. This guy's, you know, he's 20s or so. Uh, Do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you've chosen, a great, a great people, too numerous to count on a number. So here's his request, verse 9. Here, underline this, circle this, pray this for your children. Pray this for yourself, even if you're 120 years old. Give your servant a discerning heart. Wisdom. Solomon was going to be a king, so Solomon needed a special discerning heart to govern his people and God's people, distinguish between right and wrong, 
for who is able to govern this great people of yours? He wanted a wise, discerning heart. And God says to him, you know, you could have asked for money. You could have asked for worldly knowledge. You could have asked for fame. You could have asked for power. But you didn't. You asked for wisdom. So I'm going to give you wisdom. But I'm going to give you these other things as well. And I'm going to give them to you in abundance. Now, when I was a kid, I read this and I thought, great. I want power, money, wealth, and fame. So I'll ask for wisdom and then God will have to give them to me. It doesn't work that way. Okay? Um, it's the heart that wants wisdom that you need to ask for. If God gives you the rest, then be scared to death because it's been the downfall of many people. If God does not give you the rest, then still be scared to death in the sense that you've got a life. God's given you something, and you need to rely upon God for every breath you take and every move you make. It's that simple. Now, I look at this class every week in the sense that I won't say 24-7, but I mean, when, when you're in a position where you've got to prepare a lesson every week and you've got to get these outlines put together, your mind is constantly chewing. What can I do to best use your time each Sunday morning? What can I say to best help you? And we've got people from the spectrum of A to Z in this class. And there, there are some simple truths that truly mean Everything to everyone in here, I'm absolutely sure, everyone in here, if we just know that God wants to take you right where you are right now and bring you closer. And that's what God wants to do. God wants to invade, like the Alka-Seltzer demon used in the glass, God wants to invade your every pore. He wants to bubble out of every part of you. And it won't happen immediately with any of us. But everyone, wherever we are in life, God wants to move us further to, closer to Him. And so we see Solomon, and Solomon gets the wisdom. He, uh, um, uh, we see it with the split the baby story. This is where lawyers use this all the time. Lawyers say, well, we're going to have to split the baby. That's not a good thing. Um, the story where two prostitutes, they each had babies. One of them rolled over on her baby in the night, killed her baby, claimed the other prostitute's baby. The problem was brought to Solomon. Solomon, here it is. And, and fortunately, there was a, a photographer there at the time. Um, his name was Raphael. Um, he was not one of the four Ninja Turtles. Um, Raphael uh, uh, has Solomon dividing the baby. Because what Solomon said was, hey, both women claim this baby. I got an easy answer. Don't bother your king with this. Cut the baby in half. Half of it goes to that one and half of it goes to the other one. There. And the mother of the child throws herself down and says, no, 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 please don't cut the baby. Just let her have it. Because she'd rather lose her son than lose her son. And Solomon said, time out, don't cut the baby in half. It goes to the woman who was willing to give the baby up so the baby would live. Because that's the heart of the mother. And all the people said, we got a wise king. And that's a story that's made it through the ages because he was a wise king. Solomon splits the baby. The golden age of Israel, it's recorded in 1 Kings 4.20. They ate, they drank, they were happy. Um, that's, uh, uh, that's a direct translation. They ate, they drank, they were happy. Um, he was a renaissance man. He knew all sorts of things. He builds the Lord's house. We've got to get through this before we close. He builds the Lord's house. Work with me here. God doesn't have a house. He dwells in the tent that Moses had set out, the tabernacle. Um, uh, David said, I want to build the Lord a house. It's not right that God shouldn't have a house. 
God says, you're not going to build it, your son is. Solomon knows it's his job to build the Lord's house. And he designs and builds this wonderful house, the temple of Solomon uh, uh, that history records. And we can read about the Lord's house. It's completed after seven years of work. It's 90 feet long. How long is 90 feet? 90 feet is... uh, um, Al's the builder. He's, he knows feet. 90 feet. How long would you say this is? About two-thirds of this. So it's not quite this long, and it's uh, 30 feet wide. Maybe two-thirds again? Okay. So about two-thirds the size of this auditorium. That's how big his temple is. And he builds it. Seven years. I think Solomon peaked there. See, Solomon winds up taking on a whole bunch of wives. Solomon winds up living a life of extravagance. He imports baboons and monkeys. Solomon gets so caught up in all of his possessions and all of his power and all of the sex at his disposal. I mean, he's got 700 wives and 300 concubines on top of that. Money, sex, power, fame... They're all his. And you see his life slide from one that's wisdom of God into idolatry and worshiping other gods at the end of his days. In fact, God says, I'm going to rip your kingdom in half. Out of respect for your father, King David, I won't do it while you're alive. But when your son comes into power, I'm ripping the kingdom in half. And it's because you left me. You see, what Solomon did is Solomon peaked a little too early in his walk with the Lord. We don't want to peak in our walk with the Lord until Judgment Day. And then we want to stay at that peak, and that's the promise from God we will. He peaked a little early. Why do I say he peaked early? Well, if you look at the completion of the temple, the Ark of the Covenant's taken in there. That's got the manna, that's got the Ten Commandments, that's got the staff. And God shows his presence there in an obvious way for all of the people. And then Solomon starts building his own house. And I think this is where it peaks. It's the end of chapter 6, first verse of chapter 7. Look at what happens. He builds God's house, 7 years, 90 by 30. Next verse. He builds his own house. Takes 13 years. Ooh. Wonder why. It's 150 by 75. It's a little bit bigger, isn't it? The Lord doesn't need as much room as Solomon. The Lord only has one wife. That's the church. Solomon had, you know, a hundred. Hundreds. And the interesting part is this is in the Bible in 1 Kings 7, 1. Um, I want to show it to you because, remember, the Bible didn't have chapters and verses when it was written. So when it was written, this just follows one right after the other. It says, the foundation of the temple of the Lord. This belongs to the Lord. This is the Lord's house was laid in the fourth year, month of Ziv. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bul, the eighth month, the temple was finished in all its details according to specifications. He, Solomon, spent seven years building it. Now, just imagine originally this didn't have any of that extra junk in there. It was just one word right after the other. Solomon spent seven years building it. It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. He built the palace of the forest of Lebanon, 100 cubits long, 50 wide, 30 high, four rows. It goes on and on. He's got ivory that he's overlaying with gold as if the ivory's not nice enough. He's got shields of gold 
Well, the shield doesn't need to be made out of gold. That's of no use in battle. It's only for looks. Solomon starts and he builds his own house and he is past his peaking at this point. And we see then the extravagance, the wives, and God promises to rip the kingdom in two. By the way, we're not done yet with Solomon in the Old Testament. We're going to see some stuff he wrote. And it's interesting to me that Jesus Christ chooses Solomon, who had all of his money and all of his extravagance and all of his show, and points to the lilies of the field and says that Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed as beautiful as one lily of the field. That's the beauty God has for us. We don't want Saul, Samuel, Solomon's extravagance. We want the beauty of Jesus Christ in our hearts. Amen? Okay. Points to take home. Last thing to cover. First of all, remember your general familiarity with the book. Let's go through them together. Make sure we're all together. We start with Genesis. We have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Okay? Now stay familiar with it. It's a book about the kingdoms, a general familiarity with Solomon. Remember about him. Remember our parenting advice. A child without direction becomes a man without a moral compass. Get an early start with the Lord. That means right now where you are in your life, start with the Lord. That was a good thing Solomon did. He asked for wisdom. He got all the blessings. A lot of people don't ask for the Lord until a life of misery 70 years later on their deathbed. You miss out a lot. Start early with the Lord, but don't let it go to your head. What He gives you, don't let it go to your head. And don't peak too soon. No matter how close you are to God, you can always get closer. And that needs to be what you strive to do. Get closer to the Lord. Um, seek first His kingdom, His righteousness, and everything else gets added. In whatever degree you need it. So, it's where we've been. Now we're there. Where are we going? We'll talk about Elijah and Elisha and, and the rest of the King's book, uh, 1 Kings, next week. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you very much for um, the ways you teach us, the stories, um, the, the, the verses here and there that, that minister so profoundly to the way we live our lives. Lord, it is my prayer, and I think it's our prayer as well, that you will reach down your spirit and touch each one of us and and motivate us, Lord, to draw closer to you, to accept your divine guidance in our life, to look for the ways you want us to, to live with our families and with others. Lord, may people look at us and see a life of love. May they see your love for all of humanity in the way we live and in the way we treat people and in what we do with the things you've entrusted to us. May we not live for our glory, Lord, may we live for yours, starting right now, for everyone in here. It is our prayer through Jesus our Lord. Amen.